Good afternoon, friends. Grateful to be with you. Uh, I love your church. I pray for your church from time to time. And it's a pleasure for me to be together with you. Uh, Pastor James was telling me over lunch how you guys have been moving around a lot lately. And it's a testimony to God's grace that, as I know you've said to them over and over, the church isn't finally the building, it's the people. And honestly, I, I think there's a certain glory to God. There's a certain look at what he does when all the big, beautiful buildings of the world don't amount to much. And you guys are happy to be together as a congregation because that's finally, again, whom Jesus has purchased. He's not purchased the building. He's purchased you. So no matter where you are, you get together every week and you praise God. And so that's an encouragement to me. And I, I pray that however long this time of transition lasts, you don't grow disheartened in it. Now, as a preacher, it, it is, uh, it's interesting. I've, I've never preached in front of a mosh pit <laughs> before. It makes me a little nervous. If you've been down here, it's pretty deep. My girls were placing bets beforehand. If I get animated, <laughs> got to keep it right here. Or if you're moved by the Spirit, feel free to come and mosh <laughs> during the sermon. Okay? This is a safe place. Well, I've been doing my quiet times in the fall in the book of Matthew. And I thought it would be good just to look at the very beginning. The beginning before the beginning, as I called it. As you may see there. But let me, let, me, let me start a little ways back, actually. In fact, let me start back in the year 1616, where a man named George Slauson was born to Richard and Anne Slauson in the village of Southwark, Southwark in Surrey, England. 20 years later, in 1636, George and his brother Thomas got on the boat Jonas and immigrated to the American colonies. George and his brother began their life together in Lynn, Massachusetts, once they got here, but soon moved to Sandwich, Massachusetts, and finally to Stamford, Connecticut, which had increased to 59 families by the year 1642. Now, over the next few decades, George would raise a family, purchase land, serve as an officer in the church, serve as a representative in the General Assembly, assembly, and generally play an active role in civil affairs, civic affairs there in Stanford. Uh, For instance, at one point, he negotiated land treaties with the Native Americans, first in 1640 and then 1645, and finally in 1667, which was signed, that last one was signed by Taphance and Pinahay for the Indians, and George Slauson and several others for the whites. One early history entitled The First Puritan Settlers states, Slauson was a firm Puritan and a good man who was favorably noticed by Cotton Mather, a name you may have heard of. And Slauson was also a Congregationalist. Now, Slauson died in February 17, 1694, leaving behind several children and a wife. And among those he left behind was John Slauson, who had been born in 1641. John, in turn, begat Jonathan in 1670, who, in turn, begat David Slauson in 1713, who begat another David Slauson in 1735, who fought in the Revolutionary War and begat Moses Slauson in 1780, who begat William Nelson Slauson in 1822, who begat William Gabriel Slauson in 1845, who, as a 59-year-old, begat Loyal Nelson Slauson in 1604, who begat William Loyal Slauson in 1944, as well as Barbara Jean Slauson in 1948, who in 1973 begat me. To spare you the math, that means I'm 50 years old. 
In other words, George Slauson, who crossed the Atlantic on the ship Jonas in 1636 with his uh, brother Thomas, was my great, 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 great grandpa on my mother's side. It was only this last year that I discovered my American lineage could be traced back to 1636. And I confess that when I heard that, I remember thinking to myself, well, that, that makes me pretty American. That, that makes me about as American as it gets, right? Now, of course, as soon as I say it like that, there might be something in you that squirms a little bit. It's like suddenly I've switched into a kind of political statement in saying it like that, don't I? Jonathan, are you saying your family is more American than others? Are you saying you have more rights to this land than others? Is that what you're saying? More, more rights, say, than people crossing the border from Mexico, whose genealogies trace back into Mexican and Central American and South American history. Genealogies, make no mistake, are political documents. Nations, after all, are built on families, such as those 59 families in Stamford, Connecticut in 1642. And those family stories in turn tell national stories, the histories of our nations. Genealogies determines who is who and who deserves what. Is this my land? Do I deserve this land? Do I own this? Is this inheritance mine or is it yours? And so sure enough, since Genesis 4, these are the very things that have divided people and that we have fought over. I deserve this land. No, I deserve this land. Indeed, the very idea of what it means to be American has been continually contested. It, it turns out I have 67 Lehman on the Lehman side, my dad's side, 67 Lehmans who fought for the Union Army and 22 Lehmans who fought for the Confederate Army. My own family shows that history of division nationally, doesn't it? And what does it mean to be American, that I can go back to 1636? Well, what about Taphants and Pinahay, the Native Americans with whom my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather negotiated, do they not have a claim to being even more American in some sense? Well, there's a can of worms. Well, we just finished the Christmas season, and yet I wonder how many Christmas time, Christmas time sermons and preachers began where Matthew actually began, which is with a genealogy. It's interesting, isn't it, that the story of Jesus actually begins with a genealogy. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1. If, if you're using the one handed out, that's going to be on page 807 of the one in the, in the seats. And the story before the story, the beginning before the new beginning, is, as I say, a genealogy. The first thing that Matthew wants us to know before... He gets to that stuff that we just celebrated about the angels singing and the, the little baby in the, in the uh, manger, the virgin birth, is a much older story about who begat who. Beginning with Abraham and culminating in Jesus. Unless you doubt that this is in fact a very political Thing for Matthew to do, just consider Herod, who in the very next chapters is going to enter the nativity story because he's threatened about his throne, isn't he? Because he hears where this one has come from. Now, some of you are wondering, Jonathan, are you really going to preach a genealogy as a guest preacher? Yes, in fact, I am. Not only that, I'm going to read it. All right? For some reason, the Holy Spirit thought it was worth you hearing and me reading. Here we go, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of, I have to admit, I always struggle with saying this one, Abiyad. If you're ever reading one of these things, you're supposed to just sound confident and keep going. <laughs> People will think you know what you're talking about. Abiyad, and Abiyad, the father of El Eliakim, there we go, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I have three basic sets of lessons for you from this genealogy this morning. Now, this is a bit complicated. Each of those three sets of lessons really are sets. Okay, so how many of you, three all caps points, all right? Lessons for reading your Bible, lessons for knowing Christ, lessons for knowing yourself. And under each one of those, I'm going to give you some subpoints. If I'd done a better job, I'd have gotten these to put in your bulletin beforehand, but you guys can follow along, I trust. So here we go. Here's the first set of three lessons. This is the know your Bible better lessons, okay? If you're a note taker, do that in all caps. Know your Bible better lessons. And here's, here's number one that this genealogy helps us to know our Bibles better, and that is the New Testament depends on the Old Testament. The New Testament depends on the Old Testaments. Now, I trust you guys know what it is to wait nine months for a new season of a show, but then, but then you forget what's happening. But gratefully, the TV showers or the TV producers give you the little recap, right? Sort of last season on Wind Calls the Heart, Elizabeth Thatcher, new teacher in Coal Valley, finds herself charmed by Constable Jack Thornton. You know, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then you watch the new season. Well, the New Testament, too, begins with a recap, right? Look, look at verse 2. It reminds us there of stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then look at verse 3. Do you, do you remember those outlandish stories about Judah sleeping with his, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Right? And then verse 5, you probably remember the sweet stories of Ruth, who eventually leads to David. But again, this is not whitewashed history. David bore Solomon through the stolen wife of Uriah. You see that in verse 6, right? And on and on this recap, last season goes with names that invoke a host of memories for any of us who have read and studied the Old Testament, right? As you read those names, those, those stories come to mind. And of course, this recap is, as I said, a genealogy. And genealogies not only remind us of what happened, but they also remind us of who someone is. Do you want to know who Jesus is? Well, then you have to know something about Abraham and David and all of these other characters. Indeed, Understanding who Jesus is 
requires us to know something about the national history of Israel. Just like knowing a little bit about me knows, means knowing something a little bit about the history of the United States. So a quick takeaway lesson for us, friends, is how well do you know the Old Testament? You claim to love Jesus and to know Jesus and to be united, if you're a Christian, to be united to Christ through the new covenant and his blood. Okay, well, do you, do you, do you really know him and his history? Because his history explains who he is. You must study the Old Testament. Okay, that's the first know your Bible better lesson. Here's a second know your Bible better lesson. And if you're a note taker, this one's long, right fast. The Bible's genealogies don't just tell us who someone's family is, but who the nation of Israel is. In other words, it's not just my, who's my great-grandpa, but, but who are my fellow citizens? I'll say it again. The Bible's genealogies don't just tell us who someone's family is, but who someone's nation, or who the nation of Israel is. And I've already been touching on this point some, but in the Bible, family trees and family histories are the stuff out of which national trees and national histories are made. So in creation, God organizes our lives into families, and then that gives birth to nations. And you can see that especially if we spent the time in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. In other words, history plays out on the platform, on the stage of family histories and nation, national histories. Or, or more to the point, families and nations provide the organizing principles for our lives. Uh, that's, that's what Matthew's genealogy attests to us this morning. This is ordinary. Ordinary life in this world by God's design is families and as a result of the fall and his provisions of mercy and grace, nations. Which is to say families and nations are worth preserving. They are important. And sure enough, the culture wars of our day which dominate social media and so many of our conversations are contests about what a family is or who the nation is. That's true whether the topic is LGBTQ or America's race problem or immigration or so many other things that we could name. Family and nation provide the building blocks of civilization itself. They're going to be contested. And if you get these things wrong and you're what a family is and what a nation, your, your family and your nation and ultimately your civilization will begin to crumble. Indeed, a nation that undermines the family is a nation that will not long survive. It's not without reason that the culture wars are so hot. Now, insofar as first century Israel was under Roman occupation, they too struggled with national identity. And so that's why you get the contests between a, a zealot, like Simon, and a tax collector, like Matthew, who wrote this very gospel. So again, notice where Matthew begins with the claim that Jesus is genealogy is as Jewish and as Hebrew as it comes. He takes it all the way back to Abraham. Now here's what's interesting. It's as if Matthew wants to say, don't get too excited about the fact that that's the case, that, these has, that Jesus has Jewish roots. Here's lesson three. Lesson three about reading your Bible better. Number three, the New Testament is where the Old Testament genealogies go to die. The New Testament is where the Old Testament genealogies go to die because Jesus will build a family and nation not through procreation, but regeneration. The New Testament is where Old Testament genealogies go to die because Jesus will build a family and nation not through procreation, but regeneration. Now, reading through the Old Testament, you'll see that it's filled with genealogies. I mean, you'll go through Genesis, go, go to Ruth, go through Chronicles. It's, just, it's a ton of them. 
And then you turn the page, the first page of the New Testament, and you encounter a genealogy, and your first thought is, oh, okay, this is, this is just more of the same, right? It's just like, it's just like I've been reading. And sure enough, we have another genealogy. You think nothing has changed. But then you keep reading, and hold on. There aren't any more. That's the last one. Now, now Luke has his version, but it, it's still to Jesus. The genealogy to Jesus is the last genealogy in the Bible. The New Testament is where Old Testament genealogies go to die. Why? If you have your Bible open, flip a couple pages to chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Right after promising the kingdom of heaven, John warns Israel's leaders not to take comfort in the fact, 3, 9, we have Abraham as our father. Big whoop, says John. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, people would become children of Abraham, not by natural birth, by, but by supernatural birth. Children from stones. That's supernatural. Now flip to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 50. When the people tell Jesus that his mother and brothers are looking for him, Jesus then defines the family, not biologically, but spiritually. Look at 1250. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Make no mistake, a very Jewish Jesus shows up and effectively calls for a revolution. That's what he does here. Uh, he, he's sort of like, imagine a presidential candidate coming up and during the campaign season saying, my platform is to make all non-citizens citizens and citizens non-citizens. How well would that campaign go? Might they crucify him? If God's Old Testament kingdom and nation grew by procreation, by genealogies, his New Testament nation and kingdom would grow by regeneration, by uniting yourself to Christ through repentance and faith. And this is why, as I say, the New Testament is where Old Testament genealogies go to die. No longer will a man's seed or a soldier's sword be that which creates, builds the kingdom of God, the nation of God on earth. Not by physical descents, de descent, but by repentance and faith. Christianity begins with conversion. And that's why, friends, if, if you come to join this church, the, the elders are not going to ask you, so who are your parents? They're going to ask you, have you repented and believed? And that's why this is a Baptist church. You, you, you only baptize believers, not the children of believers. For, for as much as we are grateful for and share a gospel fellowship with our Presbyterian and Anglican brothers and sisters. Jonathan, are you seriously turning a, a sermon on a genealogy into a defense of believer's baptism? Yes, that is what I'm doing. Why am I doing that? Well, precisely in the fact that Old Testament genealogies stop right here, at the very beginning of the gospel and the one to whom the gospel leads. Do you want to be numbered among God's covenant people? Do you want to be counted as a citizen of his kingdom on earth, his heavenly kingdom on earth. Well, what counts now is being united to Christ by faith, nothing more. In fact, you might say there is a New Testament genealogy. Just listen. Revelation 20:12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The New Testament genealogy 
depends on whoever's name is written in the book of life, which only includes people who have trusted in Christ by faith. Uh, so a, a quick message for all of the kids in the room this morning. What's important, kids, for you to understand, it doesn't matter for you if your parents' names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You don't get automatic entrance, kids, into that book because your parents have trusted in Jesus and are following Jesus. Your name doesn't get written down there. You, too, must repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And kids, you can do that starting today. Now, if you're here this morning as a non, or this afternoon as a non-Christian, this is what uh, you should understand distinguishes Christianity from not all, but many other religions. Those born into a Muslim family in a Muslim nation are Muslim. Those born into a Hindu family in a Hindu nation are Hindu. Those born into a Jewish family in the Jewish nation of Israel are Jewish. Meanwhile, those born to two Christian parents are not Christian. Because you only become a Christian through repentance and faith or conversion. Uh, nor do you, you live or can we live in a Christian nation. Because the only Christian nation in the Bible, according to the Apostle Peter, is the church. You are a holy nation, says Peter, says Jesus. So Jonathan, are you seriously taking a genealogy and talking about Christian nationalism now? Yes, I am. Because this is where the genealogies of the Old Testament go to die. Do you see? We're a people of faith. Happy New Year. Being united to the man at the end of this genealogy is declared in your baptism, friends, unites you to God's nation, the true Christian nation. And that happens through repentance and faith. And friends, this, this is why Christianity doesn't get tied to any one culture. Uh, some friends of mine have been reading books recently about seeing Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, and, and, and they find those books helpful. And I, I think there's something to say to understanding the Hebrew roots and the ancient Near Eastern roots of, 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 of Scripture and the New Testament and how they're operating in some of those categories. But let me be clear, understanding the culture of that time is of only some limited use. Because finally, this is a gospel, the good news of Jesus is to go to all nations and all people groups with their different cultural clothing. And that's why, friends, I can travel to Africa or Brazil or Malaysia and find brothers and sisters in Christ who are wearing different cultural clothes, as it were, and yet find such sweet, wonderful, amazing fellowship with them in the gospel that I don't share with people from my own country or those who look just like me. This Christianity is for everybody if they would repent and believe. Friends, I, I hope you see the larger point here. The New Testament depends on the Old Testament and, and, and it teaches that the genealogy which moves through the Old Testament culminates here in the person and work of Christ, which is to say all of the Old Testament is pointing towards, is leaning towards Christ. That brings us to our second set of lessons. Okay, so we had know your Bible better lessons. Those are your all caps, three lessons. Now here's a second all caps sentence. Uh, know Jesus better lessons. Okay, let me, let me give you three more lessons for knowing Jesus better. Number one, Jesus fulfills all the promises given to the people of Israel since Abraham. Jesus fulfills all the promises given to the people of Israel since Abraham. Uh, the Old Testament, if you've read it, you know it's filled with uh, promises. He promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blessed you and him who dishonors I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And whom is that fulfilled? Christ, right? Or, or we read this earlier in the service. I, I'm glad you, you picked this out, the, the, the Davidic covenants. He promised David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Fulfilled in Christ. 
He, through Isaiah, he promises all Israel on their way to exile, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How does that get fulfilled? Through Christ and those who are united to Christ. And friends, we could go on and on. And this is why Paul says to the Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Now this should dramatically affect how you read the Old Testament. Friends, I want you to read the Old Testament through Christ. We We could pick any passage you want. Think of Psalm 1. Here's another first book, right, of a, of a great book. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Is that you? Do you meditate on God's law day and night? Have you, have you completely abstained from the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers? like a tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in season if leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers wicked art they're like chaff do you bear that kind of fruit have you done that perfectly are, are you like this tree of life planted by a stream of water and notice notice psalm 1 kind of invoking genesis 1 and 2 the tree of life and the streams and this, this perfectly righteous man who meditates on God's law day and night, he bears that kind of tree of life fruit. Again, is that you? Is that me? So do I go back and read Psalm 1 and think to myself, that's me, or I got to do this? Well, step one, that's Christ. Christ is that blessed, righteous man of Psalm 1. So what do I got to do? I, I got to hold on to Christ by faith. Too often I've been like the wicked. But now I come to Christ, confess those sins, and hold on to him, and then follow after him. Turn away from my sins, repent, and follow after that righteous, blessed man of Psalm 1, who is Christ. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 1. Do you see? Now we could go to Old Testament after Old Testament text. We read it through Christ because it all culminates in him. He fulfills all the promises and all the commands, I should say. Number one. Number two, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. Go back to Matthew 1, and I want you to look at the very first words of Matthew 1. 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you guys have a Greek Bible with you, or, you know, x-ray vision glasses that let you see the Greek, the original Greek, you would read the words. In the Greek, you would read Biblos Geneseos. That's what it says. Biblos Geneseos. What does Biblos sound like to anybody? Kids? Biblos? Bible? Okay. Geneseos. What does that sound like? Genesis? Bible or book? Genesis? Okay, now turn back to Genesis 2. Seriously, flip in your Bibles back to Genesis 2. Look at verse 4. Genesis 2, verse 4. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, it says, these are the generations of. This is a key phrase in the book of Genesis. It's used nine more times. These are the generations of humanity. We'll see these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Jacob or Esau. These are generations and and so on. It's used nine. It gives structure to the book of of Genesis. These are the generations of. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the one written several hundred years before the time of Christ, which Matthew would have been drawing his quotations out of, the Greek version of the Old Testament... What do you think those words are? These are the generations of. Biblos Genesis. Do you see? Now, if you, if, you, if you Google, why is Genesis named Genesis? Or why is the first book of Moses called Genesis? Most, most online sources will tell you, well, because in English, Genesis means beginning, and this is the beginning of the Bible, so we call it Genesis. Well, that's not quite right, actually. In fact, 
Genesis is called Genesis because in the Greek version, the word there is generations or genesaos. Do you see? So what does Matthew then do when he starts his book? He, he goes back, he puts his cursor over Biblos Genesaos, he puts, clicks copy, and then he brings it to his book and he hits paste. Biblos Genesaos. What is Matthew giving us? A new Genesis, a new beginning, a new creation, a new Adam. Jesus doesn't just go back to Abraham and David, he goes all the way back to Adam. And what we have here is a new beginning, a new Adam. It's amazing. Friends, this is why, incidentally, this is why Christianity makes sense if you have reached the end of yourself. If life hasn't become or worked out the way you were hoping. A new beginning only appeals to the person who realizes the old way is done, is defunct. Don't want to do that anymore. Can't get control of my sin. Keeps dominating me. Can't give up this addiction. Why can't I, Why is this addiction enslaving me, mastering me? I can't master it. Why do I keep ruining relationships? Do it again and again. Same stupid me. Loneliness, depression, weakness, guilt, shame. You despair in yourselves. Perhaps you despair in this world. Into all of this guilt, real guilt, and shame, and darkness, and addiction, a new Adam steps. A new creation comes, bringing light into pervasive darkness, bringing forgiveness, bringing healing, bringing shoots of green into a charred landscape of volcanic ash. Look, look, look a little green coming up. Let me put it like this. Consider the person who's begun to wonder if life is worth living. They wonder if they should end it. Christianity shows up right there. It's precisely for right there. Yeah, you, you've exhausted all of those resources. Now you're ready for the new Adam and the new creation. You're ready for the Big Bang, the new universe, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All you got to do is hold on to him. I've exhausted my resources. Yeah, now just hold on to him. Why did you come this morning? Did you come to focus on yourself? I hope you came this morning. And in fact, in fact you, you probably didn't. You're probably like me. You walked in here this morning, you're still kind of focused on yourself. And so we're up here to remind you again and again with the music and the prayers and the, the sermon. Okay, stop focusing on yourself for a minute. Focus on someone else. Focus on him the new Adam, the new creation. You see, not the old one, who's just like you, just like me. That brings us to lesson three about Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God with us. And he's orchestrated all history so that we might see the glory and beauty of the Son. Jesus is God with us. And God has orchestrated all history so that we might see the glory and beauty of the of his son. Well, we see a hint of that in verse 17 and, and, and the number of 14. Did you notice that there? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, 14 from exile to Jesus. Now, the name, I'm sorry, the, the number 14 itself represents the name of David according to the Hebrew practice 
of gematria. So it's a D, V, D, and, and the Ds are worth four points, and the Vs were six points, and you add those up, and you got, you got 14, and, or maybe you got that backwards, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So even the number 14 is saying, this is the one who's come of David. Right? So Matthew lays that out. Uh, now, Matthew does skip a couple of kings, and in other places, he conflates a couple things. So historically, it doesn't look like it was exactly 14 in at least one of those lists. Nonetheless, he is trying to demonstrate, okay, th this is the one who God has orchestrated history to culminate in the person and work. He's the beginning and he is the culmination of all things. He is the reason for why the universe exists. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, there were some people in my basement watching the Taylor Swift Eras concert. So I went down and I joined them for a few minutes and watched some of the Taylor Swift Eras concert movie. It's intense. Have you guys seen it? No, none of you seen it. Ah, uh, it's a one shy hand. Oh, me too. All right, I, I saw some of it too. Um, Okay, instead of telling you more about the, con the concert, because I'm, I'm aware of the politics of my own home, let, let me just say, it very much reminds me of another concert of the band that was my favorite band growing up, or one of my favorite bands, U2. And in 2007, they released the 3D movie uh, about, uh, about the, you know, one of their concerts. I watched it at the IMAX theater in the Natural History museum at the Smithsonian. And I remember watching that, you know, on this kind of wraparound screen and you got Bono just in the middle of it all and just, it's just this glorious production. And I remember watching that and just thinking, my goodness, the crowd is worshiping Bono. This is a worship service. Make no mistake. And of course, the, the, these modern concert movies and concerts in general are using all the technologies available to us and the stage lights and the costuming and the hordes of backup singers and lasers and elaborate stage set to basically say look at him look at him look at him or look at her right focusing our attention and there's this amazing larger than life beautiful powerful person and we're finding a kind of vicarious enjoyment in their beauty and their power we watch them, and there's ascension in which we're, we're worshiping them, but we're also enjoying ourselves in them. They're giving to us in that enjoyment of them. Consider what God does to draw our attention to Jesus. Concert doesn't begin with the room going dark, and then the, the music starting to crescendo, and then kind of laser lights going and then the, the person walks on the stage and the crowd begins to erupt. Don't begin that way. It begins with he begat him, who begat him, who begat him. This boring genealogy. No fancy stage sets. There's obscure Bethlehem, a stable manger. No dancers, no team of dancers. There's Herod, trying to kill him. There's the Pharisees and religious leaders a little later in the story coming after him. The star of the show is heartily beautiful and powerful. That is an object of ridicule, shame. The show doesn't end with standing ovations and encores, but death on a cross. Burial, obscure field. Of course, Jesus came. He, he, this, this, this child, born of him, born of him, born of him, would, would grow up and he, he would live quietly in obscurity, the, the perfect life, the, the life that you and I, that Adam, Abraham, David, none of those characters, you and I, live the perfect life that none of us could live, quietly obeying the will and the word of God. And then this one on whom all history converges goes to the cross and dies the death that, friends, you and I all deserve to die because of our sin, 
he empties himself to make us full. Uh, we were indeed, like the Taylor Swift and like the U2 concerts attest, we were indeed made to worship. And to draw our hearts to worshiping the wrong things, the world and the devil conspired together to use the really obvious stuff to distract us and say, hey, look over here, beauty, lights, power, money. You see? Don't you want this? And we're all like, oh yeah. And meanwhile, God's like, I don't need any of that stuff. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite. Let me give you obscurity. Let me give you brokenness. Let me give you a backwards nation who's been oppressed by a grand Roman Empire. Let me show you weakness. Now watch me create a Big Bang explosion right there when nobody's looking. You want something to worship? You want to see real power? He starts with a genealogy, boring old genealogy. That was his technology of choice. Of course, genealogies depend on death, one generation giving way to another. And so this genealogy, the Bible's last genealogy, sets us up for the lesson that is Jesus who would conquer and kill death. It's the last genealogy because Christ would kill death for all who trust in him. Friends, where will we find this new creation, this whole new Big Bang life? Only in Christ. And that brings us to a third set of lessons, okay? So one more all caps, one more set. Know yourself better lessons. Know yourself better lessons. Here's number one. Church, New Covenant Baptist Church. You are a new Genesis a Biblos Geneseos. You're a new creation. You're a new family. You're a new nation. You're a new body politic. The, the old has passed away, says Paul. The new has come. Even our politics are different because our primary national identity is a heavenly identity. And our citizenship in, a, in that heavenly nation should determine and shape what we do with our earthly citizenship. It, it can, you don't want your earthly citizenship determining and shaping your heavenly citizenship. You want your heavenly citizenship shaping and determining whatever it is you do with your earthly citizenship, right? Now, I wouldn't say that being a Christian should cause you to adopt one particular policy towards the South American border, Southern American border, and the problem of illegal crossings. I don't think a Christian can say, my immigration policy comes directly from heaven. I don't think the Bible tells us what position to hold on Israel and Palestine or Russia and Ukraine. I do think how we think about nations and their borders, and their peoples, should be impacted by the fact that we now believe as Christians that none of these nations is ultimate, is eternal, is God's people on earth. They're all relativized. None of them last. Not America, not any other nation on earth. The only perfect and lasting genealogy, the only perfect family and nation is the one born of heaven. Everything else, as I say, is relativized. The entire Old Testament teaches us that civilization may depend, as I say, as a matter of common grace on families and nations, and so we should work to preserve them now for the temporary good that they do. But thanks to our sin, we know that every civilization, every nation will at best limp along for a while. We're not putting our hopes there, friends. Don't walk out of here putting your hopes in any one nation, in any one family. 
Only the Son of God can create a new civilization and a new family and a new nation. Where do you see that new civilization? We see it here, right here, in our church gatherings. Like, this is it. Here, here we are stuck in a, in a high school that we're renting in front of a mosh pit. It, that seems a little obscure, doesn't it? Isn't that how God does things throughout Scripture? Where was, where was Jesus born? Isn't this how he works? Isn't there that why there's, there's a certain glory and appropriateness in being a renter? Number two, a second lesson for us. Christian, you're not just an I, but a we. Because being a Christian means joining the genealogy by adoption. You talked about this. You said we're converted as individuals, but we're converted into a people. You're not just an I, but a we, because being a Christian means joining the genealogy by adoption. We've been adopted into Jesus' genealogy. The family tree that we read there at the beginning of Matthew becomes our family tree. Hey, you guys remember Uncle Jeconiah? Great Grandpa Zerubbabel? Strange dudes? They're part of our family. A little embarrassing. There it is. That's why Paul can call us the Israel of God. Galatians 6. Being a Christian, in other words, is about not just being a new I, it's about being a new we. The new we, Christian, includes a new we. Conversion is corporate. You're part of a family now. We, a friend, if you find yourself not loved well by this church, we're sorry. We're, we're not going to do it perfectly. But, but that's, that's our aim. We're, we're working toward it. We're, we're, in the same way you're disappointed with your family from time to time, your biological, you're going to be disappointed with, with God's new family in this time and season. But, but, but that's, that's our aspiration. That's what we're trying to live into and live towards. What that means very practically is that you're beginning to just submit your Christianity, your discipleship, your following Jesus to this congregation. You're, you're getting to know them. You're letting them get to know you. You're, you're giving the people that you see around you right now a certain place in your social calendar throughout the week. Christianity is not a once a week affair. It's an all week affair. In other words, do you, do you want to love, do you want to grow in love for Jesus? Do you want to grow in following Jesus? Well, if you keep the family of God, the bride of Christ at arm's length, if you keep yourself at the periphery, you're going to miss it you're not understanding how this thing works. This thing called Christianity. This thing called a gospel life. It's done linking arms with these other brothers and sisters. You have a new last name now. Christian. Part of a born-again genealogy. Lesson three. This is for the non-Christian. Non-Christian. If you would understand yourself not to be a follower of Christ. You can join God's genealogy by trusting in Christ. You can get in on the family tree by trusting in Christ. I, I wonder what you think of your own family of origin. Do, do you have a good family? Do you have a bad family? I wonder where you come from. Maybe, you, maybe you're American. Maybe you come from some other nation. I wonder what you think of your nation of origin. Good, bad, Good place, bad place. I began with my own family tree. I have deep roots in the United States. And even there, though, we, we see a lot of good and bad. I told you about family members fighting for the North, family members fighting for the South. I, very mixed, right? None of this finally matters to my non-Christian friend. None of this finally matters when it comes to the kingdom of God in Christ. Whatever your family background is, whatever your national background is, whatever, whatever culture you understand, you can turn now from your sin, put your hope and trust in Christ and follow after him and be a part of this heavenly family, this heavenly nation. You see? And this is for all peoples, not just for white Americans who look like me or anybody else. This is for all people. That's who Christ came for. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people. If you have more questions about this, talk to Pastor James, talk to 
any Christian in the room, talk to me afterwards. Finally, lesson four. Christian. All the family inheritance and all the nation's treasures belong to you. All the family inheritance, all the nation's treasures that were fulfilled and won by Christ, if you're holding on to Him, belong to you. Remember what I said? All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And if, if you're in Him, it's yours. I think, I think about it like this. Picture yourself as an orphan at an orphanage. And then this, 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 this couple, this, this well-dressed, handsome couple walks into the orphanage. They point to you. They fill out some papers. They take you into their luxurious, beautiful car and start driving you home. You've now been adopted. You pull up to this massive iron gate with family crest on it. The, the gates open. A security guard salutes. You drive down this long, gorgeous driveway with symmetrically planted trees on both sides and sculpted shrubbery. You pull up to, of course, a mansion. These massive oak doors. You get out of the car. You, you look over there. You see the, the tennis courts and the pool. You look over there. You see the vineyard and the orchards. You look there and you see like five-car garage and inside all these antique sports cars. You run inside. Playing, descending on the beautiful circular stairwell, other kids, brothers and sisters, because you've been adopted by them, these are now your brothers and sisters. And the wealthy man and his wife look to you and say, it's all yours. This is all yours, because you're ours. Friends, that's Christianity. That's what living by faith means. We don't see that now. But if that's not true, you're wasting your time here this morning. Stop coming. To be a Christian is to know by faith that's the inheritance, the full inheritance that awaits us. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit now. We're beginning to enjoy some of that righteousness and conversion and new life now. But friends, all that's coming. The full payment, the full inheritance is coming. Not because you are righteous. Not because you went to church in Sunday school. Not because your parents are Christians. But because you got to the end of yourself. And you said, all my resources are exhausted I have nothing to commend myself. All I can do is hold on to his garment and trust he forgives me and trust he's, he's driving me home with him and the inheritance waits. Who'd you come here this morning focused on? Yourself? Him. Let's walk out of here focused on him. Shall we pray? Forgive us for making much of ourselves. Forgive us for being wrapped up in ourselves. Forgive us for thinking we're the stuff. Forgive us for thinking that our sins are so great they can't be forgiven. But your arm is too short, your mercy too little. We're both proud, and sometimes we're even proud in our guilt and shame and sin. Forgive us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and perfectly did what Adam couldn't do and Eve couldn't do and 
Moses and Abraham and David and all of them, all the prophets, all the kings, none of them could do, but you did, Lord Jesus. You perfectly obeyed the Father. You walked in perfect righteousness. And then, unlike a rock star, you humbled yourself to death on a cross. And you took the penalty that we deserve. And then you conquered death by rising from the grave. And now you've called us to follow you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us follow you. All praise to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.